the true king of Narnia, Aslan the lion returns. And there's a wonderful phrase the characters in the book keep using in the course of the book as Aslan gets nearer and nearer, and it's this. They keep whispering to each other, Aslan is on the move. And as he comes nearer and nearer, the long winter of the witch's curse finally begins to come to an end. The snow begins to melt. Flowers begin to grow again. Birds start to sing. And a glorious hope breaks into that cursed land because the true king has finally come near. And I want us to see this morning that the opening chapters of Mark's gospel, you could almost summarize them with that phrase if you know the Narnia stories, Aslan is on the move. At the beginning of Mark, chapter one, verse one, Jesus identified straight away he is the Messiah, God's special king. He is the son of God. And in these opening verses in Mark, he breaks into a fallen and cursed world and begins to bring the kingdom of God with him. Aslan is on the move. Jesus is the new Adam. He's the true Israel and he's ushering in a new creation. Evil and sickness are running away from him. Ordinary lives are transformed by him. The living God has come back to his people to free them from the curse of sin and death. And we've seen the last few weeks, Jesus, he shows his unique authority to teach us about God, his authority over evil, his authority over sickness. Aslan is on the move and his name is Jesus. And Jesus makes a massive impact to the people around him. By verse 35 of our reading today in chapter one, Jesus, he is a hit. He is a huge sensation. The people are flocking to him from all over Galilee. His disciples are really excited by it. But in this passage, Jesus shows us how easy it is for us to misunderstand the king that he is to misunderstand who he is and what he's come to do. So in this passage, Jesus is revealing his priorities to his disciples. They're very different to what we might expect them to be, but they're the priorities that need to shape people who follow Jesus in this world. And a lovely moment for any preacher, they all start with the same letter. So that's nice. So the priorities of Jesus here, you could summarize them like this. They are prayer, verse 35, preaching, verses 36 to 39, and people, verses 40 to 45. So let's walk together through these verses and see what sort of king Jesus is. Because Jesus shows us his first priority in verse 35. That priority is prayer. So let me read verse 35 for us again. Very early in the morning, while it was still dark, Jesus got up, left the house, and went off to a solitary place where he prayed. Now again, think of the day Jesus has just had. It's been an amazing day. The beginning of Jesus' public ministry. He's taught the word of God to a massive crowd. He set a man free from an evil spirit. He's healed Simon Peter's mother-in-law from a fever. And he spent the evening healing many people who had various diseases. And in a sense, Jesus, like, he could just keep on going, couldn't he? This is amazing. The king has come. And yet... Here he is, verse 35, early in the morning, while it's still dark, he gets up, leaves the house, goes to a solitary place where he prays. We might think, well, actually, come on, Jesus, there's loads of work to be done. There are loads of people to impact through what you're doing. But see, Mark records this for us. He wants us to see something right from the beginning of Jesus' public life. Jesus, 
needed time with his father. Jesus needed time with his father. He needed to spend time with the father who loved him. And he more than that, he needed to ask his father to help him in the mission that lay ahead of him. Jesus needed to pray. I don't know if that feels surprising to you. Maybe you think, well, no, come on. If he's Aslan, if he's the Narnia stories, then, then he doesn't need any help at all. He can just go and boom, bring back, he would just roll back the curse. But actually, we learn here that Jesus, throughout his earthly life, was dependent on his father. He was completely dependent on his father. And John's gospel maybe points out most clearly for us. John chapter 5, 19, Jesus speaking, Very truly I tell you, the son can do nothing by himself. He can do only what he sees his father doing. And a little later, John 5, verse 30, By myself, I can do nothing. And it's against that backdrop that when Jesus later speaks in John's gospel to his disciples, and he says, John 15, Remain in me as I also remain in you. Apart from me, you can do nothing. Jesus needed time with his father. He needed to depend on his father. And in that, Jesus was showing all of us what it actually means to be human. See, sometimes we think, well, Jesus, he's the son of God. Of course, he's going to want to pray because he knows his father. He loves his father. Yeah, that makes sense, but it's different for us. We can't see God. We, we haven't known him for all eternity. But actually, Jesus in the Gospels is showing us what a fully human life looks like. The problem is when we think about human beings, we think about ourselves, and we're marred and broken by sin and death. We get things wrong. We're selfish. We don't always love God or love people. But Jesus here is fully human, but he's showing us what it means to be fully human when we're set free from sin and death. And Jesus shows us to be truly human is to be fully dependent on God for everything. So what we learn here about being a disciple is actually a disciple of Jesus is someone who depends on the Father in prayer. We are dependent on God. And we don't always think that. We often think, well, surely a sign of maturity, maybe a sign of a mature Christian even, is that we can do lots of stuff. We can do an all-age slaw, or we can fill a rotor, or we can talk to people. We're not scared of that. Surely a sign of maturity is that we get on with life on our own. We don't need to ask for help anymore. But again, look at what Jesus says again and again in the Gospels. We need to become like little children. We need to learn the dependence on God that a child has on their parent. And if we do that, we understand more of who God is, and then we're equipped to live for him. Again, prayer for Jesus wasn't just a spiritual duty or a discipline. No, prayer very simply was spending time with his father and asking for help from his father. I want us to see today, if Jesus needed to pray, if Jesus cannot do life on his own without his father's help, then how much more do we need to pray. How foolish is it if we think, well, I can do these things without praying. Praying, yeah, if I've got time, but there's not really time. Jesus needs time with his Father, and we need God's help every moment of every day. Just think of our life and mission together as a church family. 
at Avenue. We need God's help. It's our fun day today. We need God's help if there's going to be any gospel conversations from this. We want to pray for people to come. We want to pray for our friends to accept invitations. But also we want to pray that we would actually use this time to bless our community and try and get to know some people. And if that's going to happen, we need to pray. If we, if we want to see disciples made for Jesus through us in the places Jesus puts us in, we need to depend on the Father and ask him to change us and give us the courage we need to do that. If we want to see lives saved by Jesus on the earth's monsel this afternoon and the weeks to come, we need to pray. If we want to see children and young people in our church family grow to trust in Jesus and know him for the rest of their lives, we need to pray. If we want to keep sending people from our church family to different parts of the country and the world to make disciples of Jesus where they are placed, we need to pray. Jesus tells us here, a disciple is someone who depends on the Father in prayer. He's showing us what it means to be human. If Jesus needs to spend time with his Father, how much more do we? We don't always know where to start with that. We don't always know, well, how do I begin with prayer? I guess it is as simple as just finding a time in the day when you can be quiet, you can be in the shower, you can be in the car, that rhymes when I say it, you can go for a walk, um, but you just, you need to make time. You keep it simple. You talk to your father who knows you and who loves you. And I think the problem often is we think if I don't make it to half an hour, I failed. Maybe you don't think that, but some of us do. No, just do a couple of minutes and then do a couple of minutes again later tomorrow. And then do a couple of minutes after that and learn to speak to your father, to spend time with him because he loves you, to ask because he wants to help you. Jesus is inviting us here to share his relationship with the father, to have the freedom of God with anything we are doing because Jesus is now our older brother and he's adopted us into God's family. If we realize that we cannot do it on our own, then prayer makes complete sense. Why wouldn't we pray if we realize just how dependent we are on God? So Jesus' first priority he shows us here is prayer. We need to depend on the Father in prayer. But his second priority is, is preaching. Um, and we see that in verses 36 to 39. <clears throat> so again, verse 35, Jesus has gone off to a solitary place. The disciples wake up. Jesus has gone. The disciples panic. Verse 36, Simon and his companions went to look for him. You could translate the word look there as pursue or hunt for Jesus. They're desperate to know where Jesus is. Why? Well, verse 37, they tell Jesus when they find him, everyone is looking for you. Jesus, what are you doing? Like there's a massive crowd looking for you. Why have you just snuck off? What's the point of this? Come on, get back to work, Jesus, they're saying. And looking for Jesus, that sounds like a good thing, doesn't it? Again, if you're a Christian here and somebody isn't a Christian yet says, I'm looking for Jesus, you'd say, that's brilliant. But actually in Mark's gospel, looking for Jesus nearly always has, that word in Greek has a negative connotation. So Jesus' enemies are looking in Mark's gospel for ways to arrest and kill Jesus. Jesus' mother and brothers in chapter three are looking for him to bring him home to Nazareth. They say, we don't want you doing this, Jesus, come home. See, looking for Jesus in Mark often suggests an attempt, if you like, to control Jesus, to tell him what to do rather than submit to Jesus below him. And so in verse 37, when, when the disciples are saying, everyone's looking for you, it seems that 
if you like, the crowd and the disciples, they have come up with a great plan for Jesus' life. They say, Jesus, we've worked it out. We've worked out, okay, you're going to set up shop in Capernaum and you're going to heal everyone who comes. You're going to drive out demons, heal the sick, and you're going to basically make our lives in Capernaum really good. That is the plan we have for your life, Jesus. What do you think? See, for the crowds and the disciples, Jesus' primary task is to make their lives more comfortable and to help them. Capernaum have got their own miracle worker. They don't really care about the other towns. Stay here, Jesus. And again, before we are very quick to just criticize the people of Capernaum, how often are we like that with Jesus? Jesus, you're here to make my life a bit better. Jesus, I've organized my life here and you need to just wave your magic and make it all the way I want it to be. Jesus, you need to make me more comfortable. We're less keen on Jesus being the one to call the shots. We are less keen on Jesus making our lives uncomfortable with his commands and his teaching. But look at how Jesus responds to the plan the disciples have for his life. Jesus replied, let's go somewhere else to the nearby villages so I can preach there also. That is why I have come. So he traveled throughout Galilee, preaching in their synagogues and driving out demons. Jesus says, see that plan you have for my life, disciples? It's too small. It is way too small. The reason I have come, he says, is to preach the good news of God to as many people as I can. Jesus refuses just to stay in Capernaum, to stay with the people who'd see him now. He wants to break out into new territory so that other people get to hear the gospel and respond to it. He's committed to spreading the good news of the kingdom of God rather than making his disciples' lives comfortable. And we might say, well, preaching doesn't seem as helpful as healing. <laughs> doesn't seem as helpful as driving out demons. I mean, preaching for us is kind of public speaking, just a talk from the Bible. Why is preaching Jesus' priority? Again, he does heal. He's committed to healing. We see that here. Even in verse 39, he continued to drive out demons alongside his preaching. But for Jesus, the ultimate goal was to preach. Why? Because for him, preaching was calling people into God's kingdom forever by following Jesus. What Jesus wants to do, he wants to invite people, an invitation straight from the living God to repent and believe the good news, to turn away from their old way of life and instead to follow Jesus as Lord and rescuer. And he is determined for as many people as possible to hear that message and respond to it. Because see, as good as physical healing is, it's only ever temporary. So again, if you hear two weeks ago, we looked at Jesus healing Simon's mother-in-law from a fever. Again, she would get sick again. And eventually, she died. We think of all the people Jesus healed in Capernaum, they would get sick again. And eventually, they would die. Even someone like Lazarus, who Jesus raises back to life, his friend Lazarus, would get sick eventually, and he died a second time. See, healing, as wonderful a sign of the kingdom as it is, is only ever temporary here and now. But entering into the kingdom of God, that is of eternal value. Jesus wanted disciples to see here that, that actually 
the greatest need of the people around us is not ultimately healing or physical health or financial security. No, the greatest need is peace with God and only Jesus can give that to us. So again, what is a disciple of Jesus in this world? A disciple of Jesus is someone who talks to people about Jesus. And I want to say, as I, as I typed that this week, I felt like a raging hypocrite. What I want is, is a disciple of Jesus to be someone who does nice things and people work out everything about Jesus just by watching. I don't want to say anything because I'm scared. But actually, Jesus says here, no, this is why I've come to proclaim the good news of the kingdom. And disciples of Jesus pray for opportunities to speak of him. We're back to that first point. We're dependent on God in this. If we think we can do it ourselves, we are kidding ourselves. Some of us find it easier than others. That's, that's the way God works it. You know, we have different gifts. But actually, every disciple is called to play their part in telling people about Jesus. Even if, like some of the disciples, they go, oh, just come to Jesus and he'll explain. You maybe bring someone else along and they will explain. But we need to tell people about Jesus because sooner or later, our lives, our actions will need an explanation. They will need an explanation that says, the reason I'm seeking to love you, the reason I'm seeking to care for you is because of Jesus, because he loved me first, because he cares for us far more than we could ever care for him. Jesus shows us here that we use our deeds and our words to proclaim the good news of the kingdom. It's not a big preaching event. It's not a big gospel presentation, but we want to be talking to people we want to be blessing our community and praying for opportunities to speak about Jesus. And even if they don't come today, we're praying that they will come. Because actually, our words matter. Jesus could have stayed in Capernaum and just healed and driven out demons as people came to him. There was a need there. But Jesus wanted as many people as possible to hear the good news of the kingdom. And if we follow Jesus, then we need to be praying for opportunities to talk about him. And more than just opportunities, then the courage to take them. And we are dependent on the Father for that. So we need to be people who spend time with him and ask him for help. So Jesus' priorities here, they're, they're prayer, they're preaching. And the problem with those things, some of you go, well, does that mean he doesn't really care about people? <laughs> We're going, well, prayer and preaching, that sounds like he's very you know, heavenly minded. What about real life problems? What about real life struggles and real life suffering? And if we worry that Jesus is just so heavenly minded, he's no earthly use, verses 40 to 45 are here to just chuck those fears away. Because Jesus' third priority in this passage is people. We get a glimpse of Jesus' heart here as he meets a man with leprosy, and Jesus shows himself to be a God who is moved by our suffering. Our suffering bothers him. It makes him angry even. He doesn't turn away from our sin and suffering. He doesn't keep his distance. No, he comes near and he reaches out and he heals and he transforms. So our last bit here, Jesus heals a man with leprosy. Verse 40, a man with leprosy came to him and begged Jesus on his knees, if you are willing, you can make me clean. Again, to have leprosy in the ancient world, that was just such a horrific condition. To understand some of it, we need to go to the Old Testament and understand some of the, the laws surrounding leprosy and other skin diseases. Leviticus chapter 13 is on the screen there. 
Um, Moses writing, saying, anyone with such a defiling disease must wear torn clothes, let their hair camp, so don't, don't comb it, um, cover the lower part of their faces and cry out, unclean, unclean. As long as they have the disease, they remain unclean. They must live alone. They must live outside the camp. That is grim. That is bleak. But this is, this is an Old Testament form of social distancing. This is the law of Moses helping stop contagious and life-threatening diseases. This is stop the spread according to Moses. Stay away. Stay outside the community. And someone with leprosy then will be separated from their family, from their community, even from God, because they could not gather with God's people in the synagogue. And imagine what that would be like year on year. And this man with leprosy in verse 40 is just desperate. So he risks coming home when he knew he shouldn't. And he comes up to Jesus and he says, if you are willing, you can make me clean. It's actually amazing faith this man has. He goes, actually, I think Jesus, you can do what only God can do in the Old Testament. If you're willing, you can do it. You can make me clean. It's a picture of faith here. And verse 41 tells us how Jesus responds. He says, Jesus was indignant. And we go, whoa, is Jesus saying, you know, get away from me, you ugly leper. Stop asking me for things. No, he's indignant. You could translate it, he was filled with anger. Or some other, other manuscripts actually say he was filled with compassion. Either way, this describes a gut emotion. This is right in the, in the core of Jesus being. And in the, in the Greek, the idea is almost your, your bowels are just being, oh, this is just getting to me. He is deeply moved by seeing this man and his suffering. And he responds to that. See, if Jesus is filled with anger here, we need to be clear, he's not angry at the man with leprosy. He's angry at the leprosy. He's angry at the damage he has seen that leprosy do to this man. He is angry at the fact that we live in a world cursed by sin and death, and he has come to restore that world. When Jesus sees suffering, when Jesus sees people struggling and in pain, he is moved by that. He's not just indifferent going, oh, well, stuff happens. He is moved by it. He is filled with anger, filled with compassion. It just affects him in the core of his being. Jesus hates sin and the suffering sin causes. Why? Because he loves sinners and he loves people who come to him like this. And so the, the man with leprosy says, if you're willing, you can make me clean. And what does Jesus do? He does something that leper, the man with leprosy could not have foreseen. Verse 41, he reached out his hand and touched the man. We don't know the last time this man was touched. But suddenly Jesus does it. And of course, straight away, according to the law of Moses, Jesus is now unclean. Jesus is now someone with leprosy. But alongside touching him, he issues a command. I am willing, he said, be clean. And immediately the leprosy left him and he was cleansed. See, again, we're seeing the sheer power and majesty of Jesus here. Aslan is on the move. We've got this king who, instead of catching the man's leprosy, the man's le the man with leprosy catches Jesus' cleanness. See, for Jesus, his, his holiness is contagious. 
He walks into a place and he is, his holiness is stronger than all the sin and the mess and the brokenness of this world. And he shares his holiness with anyone who puts their trust in him. Jesus isn't unclean here. The man becomes clean. And if we don't know more of how Jesus can, can give his holiness to us, then Mark actually gives us a glimpse here. The rest of the passage helps us see how. So I'm going to say there's a glimpse in this passage that Jesus is swapping places with a man with leprosy to cleanse him from his sin. I think Mark gives us a little glimpse here of the swap that stands at the heart of the gospel where Jesus takes our sin and suffering on himself and then gives us in exchange his holiness, his purity, his right relationship with the Father. Because look at the rest of this passage after the, the man's healed. Verse 43 to 44, Jesus makes it clear he wants this man to be welcomed back into his community. So he tells the man, go to the priest, offer the sacrifice for cleansing, and you can rejoin your family. Jesus says, actually, I want you back in the community of God's people. It's, it's a beautiful moment, actually. And at the same time, Jesus says, don't tell other people about this. This strong warning, verse 44, see that you don't tell this to anyone. Again, that's baffling to us. We go, why does Jesus not want people to know? Sure, there's an amazing advert of what an amazing savior Jesus is. Why does he not want this man to tell people? And we're sort of back to the disciples earlier on in this passage. Jesus knows that before the cross and the resurrection, people will misunderstand him. They will think, oh, you're just a king come to make Israel great again. So, so yeah, we'll follow you as long as you make us great again. And Jesus said, actually, I'm not gonna tell everyone who I am until the time is right, until I've come to do what I came to do. So he avoids fame and recognition throughout Mark's gospel. But another reason why Jesus tells the man not to tell everyone is basically because of what happens in verse 45. Verse 45, instead, the man went out and began to talk freely, spreading the news. As a result, Jesus could no longer enter a town openly, but stayed outside in lonely places. See, because the man told everyone about Jesus, it gets to the point where Jesus cannot enter a town openly without massive crowds there. He has to stay outside the towns in lonely places. But I want us to see here is where Mark is pointing us forward to the cross. Because where was the man with leprosy at the beginning of this story? He was living in lonely places, isolated on his own. He was the one excluded from the towns. And then he meets Jesus and Jesus swaps places with him. The man with leprosy is cleansed. He's healed. He gets to come home again while it's Jesus who is left excluded and left outside in lonely places. See, Jesus has swapped places with the man with leprosy. He's taken on that uncleanness to make this leper clean. See, right at the beginning of Mark's gospel, I think this is a glimpse of what Jesus will do for everyone who puts their faith in him. Again, what is a disciple here? A disciple of Jesus is someone who trusts in Jesus' death in our place. At the cross, Jesus takes our place. He is our substitute. He takes the punishment our sin deserves to wash us clean. He becomes sin for us so that we can be welcomed back into relationship with the Father. And we're going to take bread and wine in a few moments to remember 
that saving substitutionary death of Jesus in our place. Here's how the Apostle Paul puts it in 2 Corinthians. He says, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. That is the swap that takes place at the cross. And we get a tiny glimpse of it here with this man with leprosy. Jesus washes him clean, but at cost to himself. He can no longer walk through towns openly. And in a tiny way, that is a picture of the full cost. Jesus will pay to make us right with God, to cleanse us from our sin. And so we remember that cost. We take bread and wine to say, yes, Jesus suffered for me. Yes, Jesus took the punishment I deserve. Yes, Jesus became sin for me. So that in him, if I trust in him, I am declared righteous. I can call God my father and depend on him and live for him. Jesus' priorities in this bit of Mark. He's committed to prayer. He's committed to preaching and he's committed to people, to saving people, inviting them into God's kingdom. And Jesus wants his disciples to share those commitments. A disciple of Jesus is someone who depends on the Father in prayer for every area of our lives. A disciple is someone who talks to people about Jesus. We pray for opportunities. We pray for the courage to do that. But ultimately, a disciple of Jesus is someone who trusts in Jesus' death in our place. The swap Jesus made for us. He was righteous. We were sinful. He took the punishment we deserve so we can be welcomed home. We're going to take bread and wine in a moment and remember that saving death of Jesus in our place. Let me pray for us as we prepare to do that. Let's, let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for the king that you are. Lord, we see the disciples in this passage kind of misunderstanding you, thinking they've got a plan for your life. Um, Father, forgive us for the times when we try to control your son, Jesus. We try to let him, we try to make it just all about our lives and our comfort and blessing us. Instead, Father, would you open our eyes to the life that your son calls us to, a life of dependence on you, a life of living as a witness for you, and a life of trusting in Jesus' death in our place at the cross. Father God, thank you that you loved us so much. You sent your son into our world to reverse that horrific curse of sin and death. Thank you that Jesus is on the move. Give us eyes to see that in this world. Give us eyes to see that in one another's lives, that you are working, Lord. You're transforming us, however slowly. <clears throat> Give us faith and the courage to keep asking you to be at work. And Lord, we thank you Lord Jesus, for taking our place at the cross. And as we take this meal together now, would you remember that? Would we praise you for that? Would we rejoice in your saving death in our place? In your name we pray, Lord Jesus. Amen.